Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 43, produced 22 July 2017. Scotland is a wee country, and yet it's a vast land with so very much to see. And most tourists have a finite time in which to see it. Yeah, you can rush about willy-nilly and take in the sights, but it helps to have a plan, a beginning, an end, and an idea of the sights to be seen along the way in between. I'm Glenn Moyer, and based on the award-winning research of friend of the podcast Teresa Mackay, we've created a proposed historic inns tour of the Scottish Highlands, and we invite you to come along with us on the journey, right here under the tartan sky. History, heritage, archaeology. In 2017, Scotland invites you to peer into the mists. Scotland's history is a long and rich one, filled with stories of legends and myths. Its heritage can be found in fields of standing stones and the ruins of castles that once were clan strongholds. Through the science of archaeology, new discoveries of ruins and artefacts are continuously being made, but often reveal tantalising new clues to stories yet untold. In 2017, more than 50 events are planned built around nine major festivals as Scotland invites visitors and locals alike to come face to face with the past. Great legends have been made throughout Scotland's history. What story will you write when you visit Scotland in the year of history, heritage and archaeology? As a tourist, there are many ways to see Scotland. You can join a coach tour with operators like Ravi's. There are Outlander-themed tours now offered by many, including our friends Mary's Meanders, whom we profiled in an earlier episode here. The North Coast 500, also subject of an earlier episode, is rapidly increasing tourism in the northernmost reaches of the mainland. If your interests lie elsewhere, you might wish to follow the Whiskey Trail, or perhaps the more recently created Gin Trail. Aberdeenshire has its own castle trail, and, well, there's even an ice cream trail. Hmm, must try that one one day for myself. However, if your interests include history and hospitality, then Teresa Mackay and I have put together the unofficial Historic Inns Tour of the Scottish Highlands. We hope you'll like it. Teresa Mackay is an assistant professor and program head at the School of Tourism and Hospitality Management at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. This tour is based on her award-winning research into female innkeepers across the Scottish Highlands and Islands in the period of 1790 to 1840. While uncovering and documenting the important work of these Scottish women and the inns they operated, Mackay learned that many of those same inns have survived through history and are indeed operating establishments today. 
This then became the basis for our tour. A jaunt across the Scottish Highlands, beginning at the doorway to the Highlands, Glencoe, and ending at perhaps one of the most historic of the inns along the North Sea coast in the town of Golsby. Before we set off, both Teresa and I felt it important to review some of the groundwork of her research, covered extensively in previous episode number 42, so I began by asking about why she chose the specific period of Scottish history between the years of 1790 to 1840. Prior to 1790, some of your listeners will remember for certain the um, Jacobite rebellions, right? It's 1750 and 1745. So there was a lot of unrest in the Highlands. And um, when there's a lot of unrest in an area, travelers don't go into the area. (laughs) I mean, we find that today, right? Same idea. Um, So there was this a lot of unrest and not a lot of travelers there. And then that started to calm down after 1745 in many ways. Uh, And what happened was there was this resurgence of popular fiction. Sir Walter Scott uh, had um, a lot of books that people were really excited about, especially English gentry class. So these are people who had money and had time to travel. Uh, So they started to be interested in going into the Highlands and actually seeing these places that Sir Walter Scott was talking about. At the same time, there was transportation infrastructure that was being put in place, um, things like bridges and roads and public steamships that one could take in the highlands. So all of this really helped to increase the travelers into the area. But it was a time period right before the railways. So you could get into the area with horse and cart and uh, ships, as I said, but not by train into the highlands and islands. So it was a matter of taking a look at just that time period right before railways came in and right before tourism really started to explode. Interestingly, it was a time too when there were a lot of people who were writing guidebooks. They started to write guidebooks of travel into the area. Uh, and that also encouraged people to um, to spend their any leisure time they had uh, in the highlands and islands. And what we discovered through the research in this time period, 1790 to 1840, was that inns increased exponentially, um, as you say, <laughs> to uh, in the highlands and islands as uh, to accommodate all the travelers that were coming. And that women played a key role as innkeepers. So the research itself really lays down um, the idea that uh, tourism and hospitality infrastructure was established during this time period. Well, and you speak of unrest in relation to the Jacobite uprisings. And of course, during this time frame, there was uh, certainly unrest, uh, which is a kind way of putting it, on the European continent as well, which was a typically holiday vacation destination for the English gentry. Now they could not go there or did not want to go there, so they wanted to go somewhere else. So naturally, I think with the romanticism of the Highlands, as you say, and the Walter Scott and uh, other writers, that suddenly became a very attractive alternative tourism location, I would think. Exactly. People went, you know, I'm not going to go into Spain and France at this time. I think I'm going to go the other direction. Uh, And what was also really popular and really trendy was nature going to see nature in its true, raw, awe-inspiring form. And the Highlands and Islands had plenty of that. Oh, without question. And still does to this day, as as a matter of fact. Before we get too deeply into this again, let's make sure that people understand the distinction, because we're going to be talking about the idea of there is a potential tour, if you will, of historic ends that I think you and I together have sort of created in our minds, and maybe we should pitch it to visit Scotland after this is over. But let's be clear to start with about the differences between an end versus 
as we've discussed in the past, pubs, ale houses, et cetera, et cetera? Well, we use the term in because that was consistently uh, the terminology or the word that was used by travelers at that time, regardless of where they stayed. So if we look at um, English travelers, you know, the population was much greater in England than it was in the Highlands and Islands, for example. And so there were many, many more inns uh, in England. And so that term at the time was used consistently by the travelers uh, into, into this area. And it was used regardless of what they all ultimately stayed at. So they may have asked for the inn, but ended up staying in a bothy, for example. <laughs> so, you know, um, even though they asked for an inn. And the inns uh, were the ones that consistently had offered four things. They offered food, drink, stables for horses, and overnight accommodations. Uh, so pubs, may or may not have had overnight accommodations. They may have had a place that you could tie up your horse, but maybe not necessarily overnight stabling. Uh, same with an alehouse. An alehouse may have just had whiskey or porter or ale, for example, uh, and maybe not overnight accommodations, maybe not even food. So really, these travelers were looking for inns because they usually accommodated all four things. Your research showed there truly was in this 50-year piece of history that you've looked at, there truly was literally, uh, I've termed it, an explosion of inns across the highlands and islands. What kind of numbers are we talking about? There was definitely an explosion. Uh, and you have to imagine, too, it was rural, right? This, And it still is today, uh, but rural areas uh, where... In an urban area, it would almost be natural for the inns to significantly increase over time because of the population that was there or the population that was coming into more urban centers. But this research really looked at the rural areas, and we found that the inns were increasing significantly during this 50-year uh, period and certainly in the 35-year period when we're looking at the resources. So, for example, when we're looking at uh, Lewis and Harris, which is uh, Hebridean Islands, uh, if you've ever been there on the kind of top left-hand side of any map of Scotland, um, over 35 years, there was a 23% growth. So that's significant given the size of those islands. Um, Skye itself, so Skye, a lot of um, your listeners have probably been to Skye, that increased 34%, uh, the inns did, in 35 years. Sutherland increased 54%, which is also significant given that there were, uh, the clearances were happening during this time period, 1790 to 1840. So there was still unrest in those areas. Uh, Ross and Cromarty, though, I think um, likely had the most significant increase of the numbers that I was looking at. It increased 120% so over this 35-year period. So what's, what is significant about that as well is that this was just looking at those parishes that reported having inns or that I could see that were actually inns and not pubs and alehouses and all the other terminology that we just uh, spoke about. So likely these numbers, all of these percentages that I'm telling you were actually underreported and that inns in terms of numbers increased even more significantly during this time. And this was driven by this new spirit of tourism and travel up into the the highlands and islands region. And a lot of this explosion of inns was due in part to some pretty entrepreneurial lairds. 
and the recognition that, you know, there's a there's a profit center. I mean, let's face it, layers are all about deepening their pockets. And there certainly was an entrepreneurial realization that by the building of ends, they could take advantage of this new interest in touring and traveling, uh, both for pleasure and business across the Highlands and Islands region. They did. You know, they really did because they were looking at any opportunity to make the money. There was the, definitely this trend towards a more quote unquote English way of lifestyle um, in terms of the fashion that could be found down in England, uh, in London specifically, um, the parties, that sort of, you know, gentry class lifestyle. So these uh, lairds had a lot of um, acreage, a lot of huge estates, and they had to make money off of it. And so when you've got people who are on your estate that are looking for a place to stay and you don't have a place for them to stay. It's actually a major lost opportunity. And so you can see that all of the lairds took advantage of that opportunity, created um, areas for tourism. They uh, converted manses, for example, into inns, uh, hired innkeepers. Uh, They really took advantage of all of those people who were finding this uh, new access into the highlands and islands. Now, your research obviously uh, dealt with female innkeepers and the role that they played in their emergence. But I guess the discovery of this growth of inns across the region in the same time frame was sort of a side effect of your research. It wasn't your primary focus. But were you surprised when you started to uncover this tremendous growth in uh, inns and the emergence of them in the Highlands and Islands in that time period? Not really, because, I mean, if you look at um, the people that were coming into the area, it just, uh, in a way, makes sense uh, that the inns would start to increase over time because people would have to be accommodated somewhere. And these people did have money and they were willing to pay because a lot of them were English gentry class. As I said, um, some were Scottish gentry class, too, coming from more urban areas, but they would have been used to pay uh, for their overnight accommodation. So when someone arrives on your doorstep and says, you know, where's the local inn and you know that there isn't one, but they have a need to stay overnight. You say, well, you know, for a few pence or a pound or whatever, you can uh, stay at my place and I'll feed you breakfast. So it's not surprising that that happened. It was just uh, wonderful to be able to document it and see the evidence for real. What I found surprising coming from your research is the fact that many of these inns are still operating today. You can go and visit them right now. And I've sort of put together uh, quite by accident, um, a tour, I think, um, that we could call, let's, let's call it the Historic Inns Tour of Scotland, I suppose. And so let's take people down what, what we envision that tour to be, and, um, and you can share with us some inf- insight into those various inns. And the tour that I've envisioned starts at Glencoe uh, with the very famous King's House. It goes northward through the Cairngorms to Avamore, on up to Inverness, and of course Loch Ness, and then uh, across and onto the Black Isle uh, through Cavardi and ending up in Golsby up on the North Sea. That's kind of a nice northward tour that would take you all the way through the Highland region. So let's, let's start at Glencoe and the, the King's House Inn. As I said, it's a very popular spot today. I visited there in 2014 on my first visit to Scotland. Literally stopped there just by chance because it was lunchtime and, and it looked appealing and I had my first haggis, neeps, and tatties there. But there is quite a history with the King's House that I was not aware of and certainly didn't know it went back to the 1700s. So let's start there. And what can you tell me about the King's House and what you found in your research? 
Well, Dorothy Wordsworth, who you may kind of recognize her last name, she was the sister of William Wordsworth. Um, and she wrote a travel diary of her travels with her brother and their friend Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, into the Highlands and Islands in the early 1800s. And she describes her trip with him and with uh, Samuel in great detail. And she actually talks about her experience visiting King's House at Glencoe. And I'm just going to read you a tiny snippet of what she says, because it gives us a really good sense of the kind of uh, chaos that you would find <laughs> in a Drover's Inn in Glencoe at the time in the early 1800s. So this is how she, this is what she writes. She says, a woman seemingly about 40 years old came to us in a great bustle, screaming in earth. She could hardly spare time to show us upstairs for crowds of men were in the house, drovers, carriers, horsemen, travelers, all of whom she had to provide with supper. And she was, as she told us, the only woman there. We sat shivering in one of the large rooms for three quarters of an hour before the woman could find time to speak to us again. She then promised a fire in another room after two travelers who were going to stay to a stage further had finished their whiskey and said we should have supper as soon as possible. So what's really interesting to kind of listen to that is that you can just imagine the chaos that is in yeah. this house. This, this is a got, busy place. It is a busy place. And it, she seems, this woman who's taking care of all these travelers, seems to be the only one there. I'm sure she wasn't, but she just <laughs> seems to be the only one there. And you can imagine her running around trying to cater for um, the drovers who have just come in with their cattle and they're tired and hungry and um, the carriers of uh, packages and letters and that sort of thing. Um, horsemen, you know, people who are uh, uh, pulling horses together and the travelers, the tourists, just like Dorothy and her brother. Um, and this woman was there to, uh, to you know, obviously feed and take care of them, but she was clearly running around. And we see that similar scene repeated in many travel diaries. It seems that any of these big inns where there were lots of people staying, it is kind of chaotic. But the people were varied at the inns, right? Like it wasn't just drovers. And I think we tend to think, oh, it must have just been the um, cattle the people who were uh, driving the cattle, it wasn't just them. It was people who were uh, business travelers as well as tourists. And the King's House, as we've noted, obviously is still operating today. Now, at present, and I think for the last year or so, it's actually been undergoing renovation. But there have been some new additions to the property by the company as well. Yes, it looks like there's a bunkhouse that you can stay there uh, in the meantime while the renovations are underway. Uh, and there's also a restaurant called The Way In. So still really worth going. I mean, if you're none of your list or some of your listeners have not been to Glencoe, it is absolutely worth it. And there are two places, obviously, you can still stop until the King's House is reopened. Well, and the King's House is also famous. If you've seen any travel videos of Scotland, there is a, a herd of what are supposedly wild deer uh, right outside the front door of the King's house. And yet you can literally feed them from the palm of your hand. I, I remember when I first drove into the, the car park, uh, I saw this group of deer sitting there and I thought they were, you know, wooden or carved sculptures of some sort until one of them turned his head and looked at me and I almost crashed my car while I was trying to park. But the, it's a very, 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 uh, for tourists, a very great place to stop. And, and it's fun to stop there and see and, and feed the deer. The King's House sits right at the entrance to Glencoe. We know the dramatic story of 
um, the Campbells and the, and the uh, McDonald's there. And of course, right there too is, and, and I've never learned how to pronounce this correctly, so I'm going to murder it. Is it uh, Buokil Etivmore? That sounds good to me. Okay. I don't know, Glenn. <laughs> well, it's the big triangular-shaped mountain, which is probably one of the most photographed uh, mountains in all of Scotland. So anyway, right at the gateway to uh, to Glencoe and really the gateway into the Highlands in many ways. Um, so from King's House, uh, on my tour, you would then carry on on the A82, which is what would take you there, uh, right up out of Glasgow, for example, right up out of uh, across and along Loch Lomond, up into Glencoe to King's House. Then you stay on the A82, and you get into Fort William, which, among other things, is famous because Ben Nevis is there, the tallest mountain in Scotland. And also that's where you can board uh, the Jacobite steam train, which many people know now as the Hogwarts Express, for a great steam train tour, our, our journey from um, Fort William out to Maleg and back. Uh, but you go on through and just outside of Fort William, you can jump onto the A86. Now you're entering my part of Scotland. You're entering what literally is referred to as monarch country. It's the region where Monarch of the Glen, the television show, was filmed on the A86. It carries you into Spain Bridge where the Commando Memorial is at. Uh, a little further up, you pass Glen Bogle, Ardveriki Estate, past Loch Logan, and then up into Newtonmore. Now, there's a very special museum in Newtonmore that's really worth stopping to see, isn't there? There is, absolutely. Um, this is the Highland Folk Museum. And honestly, if you're wanting to go into the Highlands, this is a must-see stop. Of course, the Highland Folk Museum, like most museums, um, or all museums actually in the UK, it's free. So you go in and it is a, what is called a living museum. And it was originally started by Isabel Frances Grant. She was born in 1887 and she died in 1983. And she had this uh, great interest in collecting artifacts and traditional knowledge of everyday lives in the Highlands. So I think, you know, I love Isabel Frances Grant's work because without her, we wouldn't know, we would know a lot about military history and other things from other historians, but we really wouldn't know what the day-to-day -day lives were like of people in the Highlands. And she used to go from craft to craft and ask people and say, you know, do you need that peat shovel? And they'd say, no, What? We, why would you even want this thing? It's old. And <laughs> she, she would say, I'd love to have it. And so she did that. She collected uh, thousands of artifacts and um, originally started her museum on Iona and uh, now it lives at Newtonmore. What is so incredible about this museum is you walk outside and it is about, I believe, about a mile long and there are four different areas. So there's a 1930s working farm a pine woods that you've passed through with red squirrels. There's a whole bunch of relocated buildings. These are buildings that are traditional from other areas that they have pulled together and, and placed along this road that you can walk along. And also the reconstruction of an early 1700s Highland Township, which we know as the location for what, Glenn? You know this. <laughs> I do. The location of Outlander. Oh, of course. Yes, Outlander. Yes. yes. They, yeah, they filmed it there at the Highland Township in uh, uh, at the Highland Folk Museum. So it's a fantastic opportunity for anybody to go and um, see what life was like between the 1700s and the 1950s in Scotland or in the Highlands rather. And what I love about the Highland Township specifically is that you get a really good understanding of what it's like to live uh, during the 1700s and you just 
you get to be immersed in that history. So it's really worth seeing. And so, see, that's that's a whole other reason to visit this region of the country is, is Outlander. I, I relate to it because of Monarch of the Glen, because that's one of my favorite shows and when I fell in love with Scotland. But you're right. Yes, they, they obviously did the filming uh, for Outlander there. And the museum sits right on a crossroads, right in the V of a crossroads. So it's very easy to find if you're traveling on this tour. Uh, I was actually distracted because I was already thinking a little further up the road to Canusi, where there's a, if you want to stop for a bit of refreshment on this tour, there's a, a brilliant place called the Tipsy Laird. And uh, again, going back to Monarch of the Glen days, which goes back a few years, that was the hangout for the cast and crew when they were at uh, Ardverki Estate in Glenbogle doing all of the filming. This was where they would go in the evenings to uh, have a few drams, to let their hair down. I'm told that the, the, they even did a little karaoke singing there. I'm almost, uh, I, I'm either famous or infamous. I'm not sure which the term <laughs> would be uh, because on my first trip again there, there were Four of us, uh, we tried to arrange, it started out as a much larger group, but it ended up only four of us could make it. But there were four of us who were all fans of Glenn Bogle. One is a, a local Scotsman, actually lives in Glasgow. And then there were two other Americans who were staying on the estate the same time I was. And so I arranged a dinner party for us all to meet at the Tipsy Laird. And the staff there still thinks think of me as that daft American. They found it amazing that some American would put together a dinner party for four people who had never met each other anywhere else in the world. And yet we were drawn together because we were fans of this TV show. And and they have um, a, a nice sign there. That's one of the, the signs from the, the old TV show, one of the props. Um, and so we dined underneath the Glenn Bogle sign and it was a great evening and made uh, some wonderful friends there that evening for the first time. But that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never <laughs> knew about the Tipsy Laird at all. I, now I, now I've got to go back there. You see, to yeah, track that down. absolutely. Yeah. The Tipsy Laird, it's, it's a great spot and, uh, spent a wonderful evening there, but that was the hangout for, uh, the cast and crew of when they were shooting Monarch of the Glen there was, uh, was the Tipsy Laird. So that's in Canusi. So you continue on, uh, up the highway, you join the A nine in that region and go on up into Avamore. Now Avamore, of course, is the gateway to the Cairngorms. There is there you can actually see, really see the Cairngorms uh, off in the distance there. Uh, it's a great place for winter sports, of course. And uh, gosh, now my mind is, has escaped me, but there's another there's, there's another great steam train trip that was again featured in Monarch of the Glen that you can travel from your board in Aviemore and it takes you up to Broom Hill. It's about a one hour trip up and back and they have a wonderful tea service and other options there. But um, there's also the Aviemore Inn, another of our historic inns. There is. And you know, what is uh, the connection to this is through the Grants. So the Grants have a massive estate in the Highlands still uh, and they have uh, they're called the Grants of Rothimurkus, and Rothimurkus is a stop uh, along this tour. Certainly, it's an opportunity to go have a picnic and take a look at the area. Um, but they have a long history, that family. And Elizabeth Grant, during the time period that we're talking about, she wrote a number of uh, documents and diaries, one of which is called Memoirs of a Highland Lady. And you can find that online. It's like a it's like a real life Downton Abbey when you read it. Um, and she talks about uh, growing up with a Mrs. Mackenzie. So Mrs. Mackenzie was sort of her um, uh, 
someone who took care of her when she was a child. And Mrs. Mackenzie met her husband, Hugh, and they were both servants uh, on the estate of the Grants. And eventually, Mrs. Mackenzie and Hugh Mackenzie uh, decided to take their servant skills and go north and open an inn at Aviemore. So this inn was originally built in 1725. And Elizabeth talks about it in her diary, and she sort of remembers Mrs. Mackenzie as an innkeeper. So this is after... Um, uh, she had helped uh, Elizabeth grow up and she had taken over this inn and now she was this innkeeper. And this is, I'll just read you a little quote about what Elizabeth says about um, Mrs. Mackenzie's daily life as an innkeeper. She says, poor Mackenzie, how hard she worked, how much she bore to keep the inn up to its reputation. The business of her inn was sometimes overwhelming, sometimes slack. Her stores to be calculated and ordered from a distance. Her fuel, peats, which she had to go to the moss to see prepared in immense quantity. Her plentiful housekeeping dependent on the farm, requiring her watchful management. Her linen, her blankets, most of her clothing made at home. Her nearest neighbor, three miles off, children to educate. She was so much respected that she was admitted on equal terms into society much above her station. So Elizabeth Grant uh, was a the gentry class and so clearly in this uh, excerpt when she's writing about um, Mrs. Mackenzie being the innkeeper she's remarking that you know she was a servant before for the Grant family and now she has actually increased her status as become once she became this innkeeper so when we see that throughout the Highlands and Islands women were actually able to change their status when they took on this role. I know we talked about that in uh, our previous episode where we talked about uh, your research. Um, and you mentioned, in fact, that uh, one of the signs of this increased status for one lady, at least, was a special seating in the church. Exactly. That was in Amory. And uh, good for you for remembering that one. That story is quite interesting, actually, with Amory Church. And they, uh, the innkeeper there, she had a special place in church. And actually, What's funny about that is the source comes from a letter of a parishioner to Lord Bradalbin, who is complaining about the fact that the innkeeper got preferential treatment in the church. <laughs> so. Those darn layers, they're always complaining about something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I want to mention, uh, I, my brain is now functioning again, but it was the Strathspey. Uh, steam railway that operates in Aviemore that makes the little trip from Aviemore up to Broomhill. Now, they may have expanded it because last I checked, it's been some time ago, but they were actually going to expand the um, the railway a bit further on. Uh, but that's the train, if you're a Monica or the Glen fan, uh, that's the train where I think it's in season six when uh, Lexi gets on the train and, and rides away from Glenn Bogle for the final time to go join Archie in uh, New Zealand. It's one of the saddest scenes in, in the entire show for me. But it's a beautiful little train ride and highly recommend it uh, as you're working your way along this historic inns tour. That's one of the things to see. And of course, I, I'm sure you know as well, uh, Teresa, Aviemore is a great shopping town. I mean, the main high street is just full of wonderful shops and restaurants. It's fantastic. It's really a great place to stop. Um, lots of great sort of uh, uh, places to get food as well. I always find that I stop in Aviemore for food. There's yes. something about it just to kind of get all my socks going before I go off to a, a self-catering cottage or something like that. Um, we know that the Aviemore Inn 
doesn't exist or we believe that it doesn't exist, but there's lots of old inns around there that you could stay at. The Old Bridge Inn is one of them. Karen Gorn Hotel is another. So it's definitely worth a stop. It's a great tourist area. And if you're there during Christmas, they uh, they actually have uh, a local herd of reindeer. And if I remember correctly, I think that the reindeer feature in their Christmas parade. So uh, a great time of year to visit. And of course, being right at the edge of the Cairngorm is a great time to visit. Avimore would be uh, in the holiday season. Um, so continuing on the tour, though, we've still got places to go. On uh, Out of Aviemore, we continue on uh, the A9, which will take us up into Inverness. And, of course, uh, there is Loch Ness. And you can certainly get on, a, on one of the boats and go out and hunt for Nessie. And Fort George is right there in that region as well, which is the oldest established fortress in Scotland and possibly in the UK, but I know in Scotland, the original Fort George, of course, was burned to the ground by Bonnie Prince Charlie and his men, uh, but the modern-day fortress is still there, and it's home to one of the events that I'll be visiting in September, the Highland Military Tattoo, and I'm quite excited to get to see that in its fourth year now. You can go on from Inverness once you've done Fort George and, and gone out and had a hike around or a, a boat ride perhaps looking for Nessie, and of course, um, Castle Urquhart is right there. There's a great tour to be done on the shores of Loch Ness there. Uh, but you can go on beyond that and you cross the Bewley Forth and then join the A832 for a drive that sounds like it, I'm hoping to make it in September, sounds like it would be quite beautiful. It's essentially along one, I guess that would be the eastern coast of the Black Isle, uh, along the Murray Forth, and that takes you into, and by the way, the Black Isle is not an island despite its name. It's it's a peninsula um, there in that part of the Highlands, but it's called the Black Isle. So the drive takes you along the east coast of the Black Isle, along the, the Murray Forth, and you end up in Cromarty, where there is another of our historic inns that you can visit. Exactly. I, in Cromarty, there's uh, stories of two women who managed two different inns. And how they're connected is they had they both had a change in relationship status in their family that resulted in them becoming innkeepers. So one of them was a woman by the name of Mrs. Sutherland. Of course, sometimes we don't even know their first name. Uh, That's not documented anywhere. Um, But we know uh, Mrs. Sutherland in 1809, her husband left for the army and she decided to take on the new inn. So it looks as if, according to the evidence that she had been doing this for uh, previously, so she kind of took it over again. And she worked with her friends to upgrade the furnishings at the inn. Uh, She also hired a man to help with the stabling, which is significant because here we see women who are entrepreneurial, women who are making an opportunity for themselves, and women who are overseeing the work of men. So things that we may, you know, um, uh, assume that that doesn't that did not happen during that time. Uh, So we see this change of relationship status and this opportunity open up. Also with the other person uh, by the name of Elizabeth Cormack. So with Elizabeth Cormack, the change in relationship status was the retirement of her brother, John. And she took charge of the Cromarty Inn in 1824. She had repairs made to the place. She made efforts to improve the premises. And we also know that she furnished the building with feather beds and counterpanes, which was a word for bedspreads. (laughs) So Ah. she was looking for travelers from London vessels, quote unquote, London vessels, she called them, Um, arriving to see the local tourist site. So there we see the evidence of the ships coming in, 
um, that people were obviously dropped off and she wanted to invite them into her Cromartie Inn. So four years later, unfortunately, in 1828, uh, Elizabeth died. And eight months later, her the inn's furniture was sold at auction, which we see often when inns were are dissolved, the ownership is dissolved, and the inns, the furniture is sold at auction. So we see in Cromartie then that sort of entrepreneurial spirit, uh, women taking charge, women overseeing things like repairs and men helping them with the stabling and that sort of thing. Uh, and obviously, you know, Cromartie today is a beautiful place to go. There is um, the Cromartie Arms Inn is the contemporary version of the inn. And we believe that it's it may be the same building as either the new inn or the Cromartie Inn that these women managed. Wow. Well, and it would make sense that their trade would be particularly in the time frame we were looking at in your research, uh, a time frame when visitors would be arriving by steamship because Cromartie sits literally right on the tip of the the peninsula that is the Black Isle. So I would think uh, seafaring or, or waterborne tourism would be would have been a main way for people to be arriving at that time. Yes, especially during the summer. You know, it would have been a much nicer, probably a smoother ride, um, given, you know, uh, just ignoring the fact that the the weather can be kind of unpredictable, but no. certainly that may, yeah, in Highlands and Islands, yes. Um, but certainly that would be a much more pleasant journey than, say, going onto some of the roads, which may not have uh, been wide enough or smooth enough for horses. Well, and, and of course, today there are A roads and B roads that lead up into Cromartie. But at the time that we're talking about, then, as you say, the roads would have been probably carriage wise and, and not much else, I would think. Exactly. Some of them were just uh, tracks or thoroughfares that drovers would have used. Um, and, you know, you're not going to get the consistency that you would. Uh, and you may not even know up ahead what the roads were um, that you would uh, come upon as you were going along your travelers, along your travels rather, because uh, the guidebooks may not tell you everything that you need to know at that time. And there are only a few guidebooks around. So, yeah, water was definitely probably the way to go if you could. And so to continue the tour, then we leave Cromartie and go uh, by ferry across to Nig and uh, and then travel on up the A9 along the coast of the North Sea, uh, where we arrive at the end of this tour, which would be uh, into the town of Goldsby and the Goldsby Inn. Yes. And this is, to me, this is almost like the pinnacle of our tour <laughs> because <laughs> here, here is an inn that is still in operation today. Uh, it was originally owned uh, and built by the Duke of Sutherland. It cost at the time 1,700 pounds to build, but it was not the only inn in this township area. It was the one that was at the north of town. It was considered the principal inn, but there were other inns uh, a little bit further down in the main part of the town. But it was the one that I think has had the most, probably the most significant history associated with it. So to give you an idea of what the inn would have looked like at the time period that we're talking in the 1790 to 1840 period, the inn itself was described as having only one room of good size, about 12 feet by 30, and only 11 small rooms, besides two closets and a pantry, including kitchen, storeroom, bedrooms, and rooms for company. So that actually is quite significant because it's, you know, in the, the evidence that we've seen, it says having only one room of good size. But what, really what they're talking about is that sort of main dining area or where people would have gathered. And so usually an inn was the largest 
building in a township. And so it became almost like a town hall. People could rent it out or people would just show up and have meetings there because it really was the largest building uh, in an area. We know that there were female innkeepers who ran Golsby Inn. Uh, One of them was Mrs. Duncan. And she seemed absolutely lovely. There was a Scottish writer by the name of Catherine Sinclair who talks about the reception that she received by Mrs. Duncan. So, and she describes it like this. Mrs. Duncan is so cordial in her reception of guests that it seems like visiting some kind of old aunt or grandmother to arrive at the door. She hurried us up immediately with a most liberal presentation of wine and shortbread that we might be eating while we ordered dinner. So there's obviously, you know, this sort of um, bustling around the guests, inviting them in and saying, please sit down and and, uh, I'll get you something to eat. Uh, And we see that, um, you know, when she talks about wine and shortbread, certainly whiskey was uh, typical on the guest table. And there is history associated with Golsby Inn and whiskey because most of it was illegally distilled prior to the 1823 Excise Act. And reports show that illegally distilled whiskey actually tasted better. (laughs) than the stuff that was legal. Um, But uh, Mrs. Duncan and her husband uh, at the Golspian in 1819, they were caught with 240 gallons of whiskey for ready for the Duke of Sutherland and his guests. And so, you know, with these inns, we not only see this sort of jovialness, we see the food, we see other things like people breaking the law, and we see other things like murders and um, altercations and things like that. And so uh, we see that at, at the Golspie Inn, where they were caught with all of this illicit whiskey. The other thing that we see, and then I mentioned earlier about the, the gathering of people, uh, what's so significant about the Golspie Inn, it, it is actually the site of the 1813 auction where uh, Patrick Seller, who was the infamous clearances figure, uh, he acquired the land that he would clear of people for sheep. And if anybody knows anything about Patrick Seller, he is not well liked <laughs> in history. Um, he is alleged to have uh, removed people quite violently from their homes so that he could put uh, sheep on the estate. So this is the site of that auction. Uh, is, so it's, I'm sorry, I guess I was going to say he is sort of the Simon Legree of Scotland. Then. Yes, uh, if, absolutely. If I, had, if I had villain music, this is where I would cue it in. Just. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, you know, and so to go there, to see the Golspie Inn uh, is, um, there are so many pieces of history that are attached to that one location. Uh, it's a fully functioning inn today. The owner is Eddie McRae, who I've spoken to uh, on many occasions. Um, He's looking at expanding it into more of a heritage center along with the inn. Uh, He's currently working in conjunction with the University of the Highlands and Islands and Strathclyde University on uh, marketing it to North American tourists with Scottish ancestry um, who are interested in going. So it's really a great sort of, as I said, pinnacle of the tour, a great way to finish it off. Well, and, and so that is sort of our tour that, that we've envisioned growing out of your research, looking at some of these historic inns with their female innkeepers that are still operating today. And and we've put together what could be a, a very reasonable tour, traveling from Glencoe uh, up to the Cairngorms through Avamore, across to Inverness, up the Black Isle to Cromarty, and then, as we say, to the Pinnacle in Golsby. We could stretch the tour just a tad. If we go back to the beginning, there is an alternate 
starting point that is uh, it features one of your historic inns and I know one that you particularly are fond of and that is the Kenmore Inn. Yes and the Kenmore Inn is still in operation today and uh, I have been to it and it was uh, an exciting stay and completely worth it and if we look back in history it was a inn that was built by Lord Bradalbin across this 90-mile stretch of road from that he owned on his estate from Inverary to Perth. And he actually built a lot of those roads to connect in with the existing military roads. So he was making huge effort, as we talked about earlier, uh, to maximize the revenue off of his estate. And one of the uh, writers who wrote a descriptive tour in Scotland at the time uh, was by the name of Chauncey Hare Townsend. And he talked about his adventures throughout Scotland and into the Kenmore Inn. And this is how he described the, the Kenmore Inn at the time. He said it was a principal house, a rather large old mansion, close to Lord Bradalbin's park gates. This we have had the good luck to find neither sportsmen crammed nor tourist haunted, but roomy and quiet. Here too we have obtained a capital breakfast ministered to us by a capital waiter whose jolly nose, much resembling a bunch of red grapes, seemed to promise comfortable things. So, and if you know, uh, when you see Canmore Inn, you will see where those gates are, specifically that Townsend talks about. Um, and it does feel roomy, but quiet. Now it's a bit more tourist haunted, I must say. There are lots <laughs> of people who stay there. Um, but he also, uh, there is also talk about um, Robert Burns. And Robert Burns allegedly uh, wrote a poem that sits above the uh, fireplace in the pub when you first come into the inn. So Townsend talks about that a little bit, and he says, uh, and his encounter with that poem. So he, he says, uh, when we came back to the Kenmore Inn, I asked our waiter more out of, out of idleness, I confess, than from any idea of obtaining information on the subject, whether it was known Burns had written the piece entitled Lines Written with a Pencil Over the Chimney Piece in the Parlor, parlor of the Inn at Kenmore, to my surprise, the man instantly replied, that is the very chimney piece, sir, until within a few years back, the poetry was there. But some traveler cut out the writing and carried it away. So Townsend says, you know, he sits down at this pub by the fireside and says, what about this piece I've heard that uh, Robert Burns has written? And, and uh, the person there says, yes, it was there, but now it's been, you know, someone pulled it away and stole it. Um, so interestingly, though, that poem has been uh, replicated in Kenmore Inn uh, above the, the exact fireplace, apparently, and you can uh, go and see it. You can, I even got a copy of it from the front desk when I was there. They were kind enough to give me a copy. Well, and Kenmore, the Kenmore Inn, for the folks that may not know about its its location, it's in the Loch Tay region. In fact, it sits right on the uh, the tip of Loch Tay, not too far from Pitlochry, which is a tremendously uh, popular tourist location. Very, very picturesque, of course. Creef is also nearby. So it's in a great region, uh, even if a bit removed from the easy drive of our tour. But it would be a great place to visit on its own or as an alternative starting point to the tour that would take you all the way up through the highlands to the very uh, shore of the North Sea. Absolutely. And Kenmar is lovely. It's right on uh, the water there. The food is fantastic uh, at that inn. And when you book, uh, you might want to request to stay at the main inn. There are rooms across the street that are just as nice. But if you really want to stay in the inn, request to book in the main part of the, the inn. 
There you go. A traveler's tip on top of everything else. You, you talk about the food at, at the Kenmore, and we've touched on food at a couple of the other ends as well. And, and that's really a, a theme in itself that I suppose one could do a great deal of research into. But let's take for a moment and do a little outlander travel through the stones. What would the fair have been like in the ends in the time frame that you were researching in that 50-year bit of history? Well, we can find it everywhere because interestingly, when people, the travelers were talking about their travels, they talked about food. And I have to think, you know, it's very similar to what we do today. We sit down, we have a meal, we're on vacation. And what do we do? We take a picture of it and then post it on Instagram, you know, so (laughs) this is no different. We see this in the diaries and people are talking about their food. Um, I found that the basics of the meal um, at any time during the day were were, um, one of a few things. It was whiskey. Whiskey, bread, cheese, eggs, and mutton. Those were the ones, those were the um, things that came up over and over and over again in the in the research. So if you uh, just sit down and you go, oh, geez, I really want a meal like someone might have had, uh, any of those ingredients would replicate what they would have had between 1798 to 1840. But you know, you can just look at having whiskey, bread and cheese and have a plowman's lunch at a pub and think back in time, you know, that would be sort of a lovely moment. Um, Maybe with a bit of hard boiled egg on the side, that would be something that they would have. Mutton for dinner would be something, uh, but not everybody likes mutton because it's that older uh, lamb, but lamb chops over and over we saw uh, in the research. So lamb chops served with mustard. Uh, Lake trout would be another dinner that they would have had. And of course, potatoes, right? Potatoes was a big part of it. To drink, lots available, beer or wine, a lot of it imported from Inverness, Uh, Whiskey was obviously made on site. Uh, And for dessert, I found souffles with whiskey. And how wonderful to think in the Highlands and Islands. You know, it wasn't just about the basics. There was this sort of French uh, influence as well, I think, as a direct result of the travelers that came in through the area. And then for breakfast, uh, a typical meal would be porridge, scones with butter and honey, or broiled herring and tea with cream. So all of those are available today too. So picking any of those would really immerse you uh, back into this time period. I would imagine that the menu, the fare as it were, would have improved over that 50-year time frame you were looking at, in part because of the influence of tourists from from other parts of the UK and perhaps from the continent as well. Uh, So I would think that the food that would have been on offer at an end in, say, the 1790s might have been a bit different from that that was offered in the 1840s. Yes, there was definitely, you know, what we would say is an improvement over time or a better connection, maybe I should say, to the travelers. that Better sourcing, I would think, too. Better sourcing, a better understanding of what their target market wanted and asked for. You know, if you had several tourists or travelers in a row asking for a certain dish and every time you had to say no, 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 eventually as an innkeeper, you would turn around and go, okay, how do I make that? How do I get it? Because clearly people want it. And so you can definitely see in the sources, you know, at the beginning and actually all throughout that time period, people may have just offered what the family was eating anyways, but certainly 
between those larger inns and the ones that were on more busy thoroughfares in the highlands and islands, uh, you, we, I saw an improvement over time, or not, maybe not an improvement, but a, a change in what they were offering over time. And I think that's a direct result of the travelers. Well, and we talked a little bit about this as your research related to the, the laying of the infrastructure of the hospitality industry across the Scottish uh, highlands and islands. And, and I think certainly there are parallels we can draw today because today there are hotel chains where traditional fare was a continental breakfast and you had basically, you know, maybe a croissant and a couple of donuts and that was coffee. That was about all you had to choose from. Nowadays, you find hotels that are offering full, complete cook to order breakfast, waffles, pancakes, bacon, eggs, the, the whole nine yards. And so we see even that evolution, I think, brought on by tourism demand. Um, in the hospitality industry today, which I know is what the industry you work within. And so I, I see sort of a parallel drawn there in, in what took place in the inns and their fare in that time frame and what we see developing in the last, say, 30 or 40 years across the, the hotel and, and hospitality industry uh, today. Certainly, because the hotels, you know, they respond to those people who are coming. And as more and more people around the world are traveling uh, into a variety of areas, uh, they will come to those inns or those hotels and request things. I mean, now you see in those um, cook-to-order breakfasts or the breakfast buffets that they have, there'll be food for people who are from Germany, for example, who have a slightly different breakfast and say, um, you know, someone from Canada might like or someone from the U.S. might like. Um, you also see Chinese foods that are offered as well. So there's this uh, intermingling of cultures within that breakfast buffet or that breakfast table. And so really they're just responding to those people who are showing up on their doorstep, not unlike it happened uh, back in this time period that we're talking about. I know you've made uh, several trips to Scotland. I'm about to, to make my third trip. Both of us have researched our ancestry there, and uh, obviously you doing your studies and, uh, and your research there. There's an awful lot to see in Scotland. I mean, we know that. Tourists are drawn by the, the sights of Edinburgh Castle, going to Loch Ness, on and on and on. The list is ad infinitum, all the various castles um, doing the whiskey trail, those kinds of things. Why should somebody maybe consider, we, we sort of, I guess, half-jokingly put forth this idea of a historic inns tour. I don't think it's actually that bad an idea. Why would you urge people to maybe think about a tour like this or certainly to include uh, some of these historic inns in their visits to Scotland when there are so many other directions they can be pulled in? Well, I think, you know, in my uh, experience, there's nothing like sitting at the back of an inn's pub in Scotland and nursing a whiskey and just appreciating your surroundings. Often they, these older inns have lower ceilings. Uh, they might be a little bit darker because the windows might be a bit smaller. There's a real hominess or a comfortableness that kind of comes with all of that. And I sit back and I think about the adventures and the stories of the people that uh, came to these inns. And I go, you know, there are lots of people who came before me and there will be lots of people who came after me. And I just think the atmosphere, uh, you can just soak up the atmosphere in inns like that. And it just adds so much more to your travel. I don't think that we can truly understand our own culture, though, until we actually visit the country. And I think that's really key. Um, as uh, Scots-Americans or Scots-Canadians, you know, we can't, a lot of us base our culture on what we see on shortbread tins or what we see in movies like Braveheart, oh, you know, yeah. or even what we see at Highland Games. And 
really, that's all of that is certainly part of the culture in one way or the other, but it is not all of the culture and it is not completely representative of the culture. And I think until you really set foot on the ground and walk the ground and understand the landscape, I think that's the only time that you can really get uh, where your culture comes from and what it's all about. Certainly even the modern day outlander, as popular as that is, is a very romanticized version of what the culture of the day was like in Scotland. And you kind of touched on what I was going to use as my final question. And that is, as I said, you've been to Scotland several times. I'm making my third trip now. And yet, as great as the numbers are of those who have visited Scotland, the numbers that have not is even larger. And I wonder what you would say with your understanding of the history and certainly a greater appreciation even than I for the uh, the links to ancestry and cultural development what would you say to someone as to why if they if they do share that uh, Scottish ancestry and heritage why they should make uh, at least one journey to Scotland because I think it has to do with the fact that the culture that we've developed here so I'll say North America, the culture, the Scottish culture that we've developed here, the traditions that we have here and the pieces that we remember and bring with us, it's actually a diaspora culture. So it's different than the Scottish culture in Scotland. And I think once you begin to understand that we have our, our Scottish culture here in North America and there is Scottish culture in Scotland, you begin to see the differences and then know that Scotland is made up of a ton of microcultures within that larger culture, then you really begin to understand the country. And I think that's when your own culture becomes so clear. And you know that, um, you know, the tartans, for example, don't go back uh, to thousands and thousands of years. And you begin to understand that the larger narratives, like Culloden, for example, um, is not the only thing there is about Scotland. Bonnie Prince Charlie is not the only thing there is about Scotland. Um, so it's about, to me, it's about understanding the people, the people that live there today so that you can truly understand where you've come from and where your families come from. It's absolutely worth it. You've got to go at least once. So there you have it, the unofficial historic ends tour of the Scottish Highlands, courtesy of Professor Teresa Mackay and your friendly travel agent here at Under the Tartan Sky. Links for more information on the inns and some of the sites to be seen along the way of the tour are found in our show notes at www.underthetartansky.scot. And if you've not already done so, check out episode 42, where Teresa and I discuss her research in depth. It's a rewarding look at some pioneering women and the important role they played in an era of Scottish history. Next time, my guest is the Honorable Major General Seymour Monroe. Executive Chairman and Director of the Highland Military Tattoo at Fort George in Inverness. Not to be confused with the better-known Edinburgh Tattoo, we'll explore the event's founding and history, its rich ties to the military, the role of Fort George in the show, and other Highland attractions to be enjoyed nearby. As I noted earlier, I'm soon off for my third visit to Scotland in as many years, and I can't wait to be back in the land of whiskey, haggis, tartan, and bagpipes. I'll be posting bits of my adventure to my blog, so I invite you to check that out as well. You'll find it at www.aglenandscotland.scot. For now, I'm Glenn Moyer. Topole, Agus Alapakubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. 
For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore Tartan Sky. That's the underscore symbol Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening.